You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. There you go. Hey, now I've got your attention. Good to see you. If it's your first time, welcome. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful you'd join us for worship. You're looking well-rested, happy, attentive. You have no excuse this morning as you're listening to not be engaged. So favorite Sunday of the year, Daylight Savings. Uh, Good to see you. And thank you to everyone who uh, attended or participated in Love Our Neighbor. Uh, So grateful for the turnout and for Chelsea and the team and all that work on that. Uh, To let you know, we have a community service fair next Sunday. So love our neighbor. That was just getting your feet wet. If you want to continue to engage doing justice and mercy in our community, meeting urgent needs, your chances next week. Community service fair. We're going to have a bunch of our community partners here. You're going to know how to take next steps in serving the community. So check it out. Hey, if you're here, you just walk over there and you can find out more about the opportunities. So I encourage you to do that. Well, let's pray as we continue our series in Deuteronomy today. Father, thank you that you are a good God. You are a consistent God. Lord, in the midst of upheaval and change, you don't change. Lord, your character is perfectly holy and righteous and just. You are a God who does justice and loves mercy. And God, if we know you, we will do the same pray you would remind us of that today from your scriptures. Teach us now from your word, Jesus. We are not here to hear from me, but from you, Jesus. So by your spirit, through your word, teach us now for your glory and our good. For Christ's sake, amen. So I told you this before. One way I know I'm getting older is by the movies I reference. And I admit it, I don't have good sermon illustrations from recent movies. I haven't even seen Barbie yet, okay? So (laughs) I hope you'll humor me and listen to another dated illustration from a movie, but it's from the best movie, Princess Bride. Um, Remember, there's a great scene in Princess, if you're a youth pastor, it's the greatest movie of all time, but there's a great scene in Princess Bride, and if you've seen the movie, you know it, Vizzini, who's the self-styled evil genius, his plan is thwarted again. And when his plan is thwarted, he says what he always says, which is, some of you know, inconceivable, right? (laughs) Now, at this point in the movie, he's said that about a hundred times. And finally, Inigo Montoya, his reluctant sidekick, chimes in and says this, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, why does he say that? Because all of these things Vicini thinks are inconceivable keep happening to him again and again and again. You ever had that experience? Someone says a word and you think, "Mm, I don't think you mean what the word what I mean by the word. In fact, I don't think that's the meaning of the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, That is a common experience in a polarized society, and I think that's how many of us feel when we hear the word justice. Justice. Justice is a powerful word, isn't it? If someone says, you know, Jeff, you need to be more loving, I'll probably say, yeah, you're right. I do. 
But if they said, Jeff, you need to be more concerned about justice, then my defenses go up. Hey, wait a minute, I care about justice. What are you talking about? Why? Because whenever someone uses that word, they're trying to draw a line, right? If I'm on the side of justice, I'm right, and correspondingly, you are wrong. We're the good guys, you're the bad guys, there's a clear line. So it's a potent word to use, which is why politicians invoke it so often. This is a justice issue, right? It's a powerful word. It's also a prevalent word in our culture right now. It's very trendy to talk about justice. It's very cool. And now, that's interesting to me because when I was a kid, that's not what I remember. At least in popular culture, people did not use the word justice. Uh, people talked a lot about tolerance. Remember that word? That was the 90s. That was the age of pluralism and relativism and like live and let live and chill. Or as the characters on Seinfeld would always say, look, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? That's... That, that was the age of tolerance. And sometime in my lifetime, that all went out the window. And, and people stopped caring about tolerance and it was all about what? Justice. Oh, apparently we're not supposed to tolerate things, right? There is right, there is wrong. We're supposed to get on the side of right and you're either with us or you're against us. In fact, uh, Merriam-Webster's word of the year, 2018, you know what it was? Justice. So justice is powerful. Justice is prevalent. It's also a very polarizing word because people use it in radically different ways. Both sides of the political spectrum think their side represents what? Justice. And so it's like we have to choose. You either vote for him or vote for him. It's either good versus evil. It's a contested word. And to make matters more complicated, there are competing secular theories of what justice is. And we don't always know which one someone is using. So for some people, a just society maximizes freedom and liberty. And for other people, a just society maximizes equality or equity at any cost, but those things are in competition. Because if you maximize freedom and liberty, you might create inequality. And if you try so hard to create inequality, you're going to have to restrict freedom and liberty to do that. And so this is a very confusing topic. And for Christians, it's a confusing topic because it's so polarized. And sometimes people in the culture say something, we think, I think that's justice. And other times people say something, we're like, eh, that might be the opposite of justice. That might be injustice. And so what do we do with this as Christians? Well, there's two dangers here, I think, okay? First danger is this. We are so worn out by the polarization and partisanship of our age that we say, you know what, justice, that's a culture thing. But we're biblical. So let's just scrap justice so we can stick to the Bible. You know what the problem is that? You know what the Bible talks a lot about? Justice. It's all over the place, and it's all over the place in, in Deuteronomy. In fact, we've seen that God's vision for Israel is that they would be a community of righteousness and justice as defined by God. God in Deuteronomy is establishing his people as a nation. His people are becoming a nation with borders and land and laws. And what's going to make Israel distinct? Well, God tells us, Deuteronomy 4. Moses says, keep God's laws and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us 
whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So what distinguishes God's people from the nations? It's not gonna be their military might. It's not gonna be their size. It's not gonna be their wealth. It's gonna be two things. The nations look at Israel and go, wow, their God's alive. Their God does things and they are near to that God. That's one. Second, look at the peace and harmony and righteousness and justice that characterizes these people because they're so close to God. And as we'll see, that relationship with God, that relationship with others go closely together. So God wants to show a people of justice to the world, and that's because justice is something rooted in God's own character. Psalm 83, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Jeremiah 9, God delights in practicing righteousness and justice, which means justice is central to God's character. He's a just God. It's central to his purposes in the world, which means you can't just give up the word. You can't just say, well, culture uses it, so whatever. Uh, no, you, you can't be indifferent toward the word. Really, you can't be indifferent toward justice itself. Do you know why? Because it's, it's who God is. It's inextricable to his own character. It is something God loves. So you can't discard justice. Here's the second danger. You hear all this and you just co-sign whatever the world says when it means justice. Because sometimes the world uses it a way that lines up with scripture. Sometimes it means the opposite of scripture, depending on how they're using it. And so we have to be very discerning to go back to the book and say, what does it mean that God is just? And what would it mean for us as God's people to do justice? Now, we're not Israel. We're not the old covenant people. We don't have a nation. We're a, a people made up of every nation. So the particulars of what this looks like will change but there are principles of justice in Deuteronomy that don't change because who doesn't change? God, right. So you guys are good. You're so much better at responding to me. Maybe that's because it's, you know, you got an extra hour of sleep, but uh, you're, you're better than second service. I'll just let you know. Don't tell him I said that, but uh, you're, you're better. So God doesn't change. So we have to really dig into what the Bible says. So Next four weeks, we're gonna look at what Deuteronomy says about justice and mercy. And Deuteronomy is a great place to start because this is kind of the template in the Old Testament for what a just and merciful society looks like. So four questions over the next two weeks. What does it mean to do justice? Why should we do justice? Who is justice for? How do we go about doing justice? So this week is the what and the why. Next week is the who and the how. I'm not gonna solve all your problems. I'm not gonna tell you who to vote for. I'm not gonna tell you the perfect public policies to enact, but hopefully you have an idea of what this actually is, why you should pursue it. And here's the critical point, why remembering who God is and what he has done is the foundation for doing mercy and justice, because that's what it all comes back to. Does that make sense? Okay, here's where we're going, as quickly as I can. What is biblical justice? We all have a sense of justice, don't we? We all have a sense that certain things are right, certain things are wrong. Certain things are fair, certain things are unfair. Uh, so what is it? You know, kids understand this, don't they? You don't have to teach a kid to care about this, do you? C.S. Lewis pointed this out. From the earliest age, what do kids say when they're cut in line or someone doesn't share with them? What do they say? That's not fair. That's not fair. Even when it is fair, they scream, that's not fair, right? Do kids need to be taught that? 
No, they just blurts out of them, right? They have a profound sense of their own rights and justice. Uh, And so we have this sense, but what is it? What does the Bible mean? Well, the Hebrew word justice is mishfat. It's a fun word to say, mishfat. I can't quite get the phlegm out. Uh, What is that? Well, uh, a mishfat is a statute. It's a law. Uh, It has to do with punishing wrong. It has to do with defending rights. But fundamentally, mishfat is God's way of doing things. Think of it like a blueprint. It's God's blueprint. Uh, When Moses constructs the tabernacle, you remember he goes up on Mount Sinai and God gives Moses a series of rules, of statutes for the tabernacle. He gives him the architectural plans, right? And he says in Exodus to Moses, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan. You know what word that is? Mishfat for it that you were shown on the mountain. So Moses' job was to build God's building according to God's blueprint. And that's an image of justice. God's blueprint for God's world, the world as God ordered it, that's what justice means. That's what we pray when we say your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's way of doing things is always done. And our desire is that God's way of doing things would be the way things are done where? On earth as well, because they're not. So that's the blueprint, and it starts with God, and that's critical. All right, five features of justice now and God's blueprint. And what I hope you'll see is that God's blueprint for justice is bigger and broader and far more demanding of ourselves than any secular theory of justice is, okay? Five things from Deuteronomy. The first facet of biblical justice is this. It's both vertical about our relationship with God and horizontal. Justice does not start with these relationships. What does it start with? This relationship. Justice is about right relationships and the most important right relationship is my relationship with who? God. This is the key Being concerned about justice means first that I'm in right relationship with the God who gives me the blueprint of justice, who is justice. Look how Moses describes God's character. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are what? Justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is the fundamental truth of scripture that if I want to live in right relationship with God, I need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. That's just knowing God is becoming like God and living intimately with God. And since God is a God of justice, if I love God and am knowing God, I will become like who? God. I will imitate him. And that's the assumption of Deuteronomy, that as you come to know God, you will begin to resemble God. That's why in Deuteronomy 10, Moses says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God can't be forced out of justice. He can't be bribed. He is not partial. He does not show favoritism. That's Deuteronomy 10. But look at what Deuteronomy 16 says. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept what? A bribe. So you know a God who is impartial. What will you become? Impartial as well. And that's why the issue of justice is primarily a vertical relationship issue, not a horizontal issue. The reason I would pursue justice and righteousness is because I want to be in right relationship with God. 
That's why Proverbs 14, 31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults who? His maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. What, what the writer is saying is that if I'm indifferent towards the plight of God's image bearers, I'm indifferent towards my relationship with who? God. See, that's so significant because it roots our concern about justice in God and his character and something eternal. Look, we don't care about justice because it's trending on social media. At some point it won't. They'll talk about tolerance again or something. I don't know what they'll talk about. We, we care about this because it reflects the image of God and this is what it means to know God is to care about what he cares about. Does that make sense? So that's first. It's both vertical, it's horizontal. It's a God-centered thing. Next, biblical justice is both, and here are my fancy words, retributive and restorative. What do I mean? Retributive justice means that bad people get what they deserve. More specifically, it means people who do bad things get punished for bad things. That's justice, right? That's one element of justice. But there's a bigger element to justice in the Bible. We often talk about justice merely in a punitive way, retributive way, right? Justice means you punish what's wrong. And that's valid because you know who punishes wrong? God. And that is a key part of God's justice. And that's what people mean when they say, yes, God is merciful, but he's also what? Just. What they're saying there is, yes, God forgives sin, but he also, as Exodus 34 says, by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. God cares about meeting out punishment because that's fundamental to justice. Fundamental. It's true, but it's incomplete. Because when the Bible talks about justice, it doesn't just talk about punishing wrongdoing. It also speaks of justice as working for the peace and flourishing that God intends for all of creation. And that means restoring what is broken. Remember, justice is God's blueprint. And so what does the world look like when it looks more like heaven? It's not just that, that the people who do wrong get punished. It means humans are protected from harm. It means the hungry are fed. It means needs are provided for. It means the vulnerable are, are protected, particularly when they can't provide or protect for themselves. And so restorative justice is working to enact God's desires for human flourishing. And so that's a bigger picture of, of justice, isn't it? It's not just punishing people for bad things, retributive. It's restoring the dignity of people. That's why Deuteronomy 10 says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Isn't that interesting? Execute justice, not just punishing wrong, but here it's protecting rights and giving what? Food and clothing. It's, it's meeting needs. And normally we would think about those things not as justice, but as what? Mercy, right? But, but the Bible gives this bigger picture. Here's why. As image bearers of God, people have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth because of who? God. And if God created people, yes, if they do wrong, they are liable to punishment, but they are also due respect, honor, provision just because God created them. Just because they are valuable in God's sight. And if they're valuable to God, they're valuable to us. And so we care about restoring the image in them. So if they have needs, meeting them. 
if they have vulnerabilities, protecting them. And those acts of mercy are a biblical picture, not just of mercy, but of what the Bible would call justice. That's why if you look at Job 29 or Isaiah 58 or Ezekiel 18, you see that things like alleviating distress, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, it's not just about mercy, it's about what? Justice. Justice, why? Because image bearers need those things and are do those things as God's image bearers. That's why in the Old Testament, people had a responsibility to alleviate distress. Both because image bearers are valuable, but here's the second reason, particularly for God's people, is because who owned Israel's stuff? It's not the state, it's who? God. And God said, I blessed you to be a blessing. Your stuff isn't yours. You don't just get to decide how you allocate your stuff. I do. And because I bless you with prosperity, I can say that a certain amount goes to needy people. That's not the state dictating it. It was God dictating it. And it was a matter of justice because certain people had needs and needed to be restored in their dignity and provision and protection. Does that make sense? Now, that's a complicated picture that doesn't fit neatly into any secular theory of justice because it doesn't start with the state. It starts with God. And that's what Israel was living out of was response to God. Now, we don't live under that state, but we serve the same God who blesses us and says it is a matter of restoring the image that we help meet people's needs. So a biblical full-orbed picture of justice would look something like this, ensuring that people are given their due as image bearers, whether in punishment, yep, that's retributive, protection, or provision. Does that make sense? You're suspect at this point. I could go further. I could prove this to you from more scriptures and take you through it. And again, this is in response to God that you do this. And if you, if you have kids, you understand this connection between what is merciful and what is just, right? Uh, my kids get hungry, and you know what I do? I feed them. And you know what I've never said after I feed him? Can you believe it? I fed you again. <laughs> 2,243 times in a row, I have fed you. Who's counting? I am. I'm counting. Aren't you just amazed at my consistency? At my generosity? I take my hard-earned money and at great personal cost, I redistribute my wealth to you so you can eat, you ungrateful children, right? I... You should be astounded at my mercy and, and my graciousness. No, you know, that's just what you do. Because you're a parent. Parents feed their kids. It's not gracious for me to not let my kids starve, okay? It's just a responsibility. Scripture says there always will be vulnerable people. Yes, first responsibility to those at home. But God says, I have blessed you to be a blessing. And when needs come into your proximity, part of doing justice isn't just giving people what they deserve in punishment, it's helping to restore the image in response to God. And that's sobering because that's not just like a I can opt in or opt out kind of thing, is it? It's a God is calling me to live that way to see his blueprint for creation enacted, okay? So it's both retributive and restorative. Third point, it's both impartial and compassionate, God's justice for Israel was both that there is equality before the law and a special concern for the particularly vulnerable people. Both of those things in Deuteronomy. So remember, God is impartial. And so how was Israel supposed to rule? Impartially. 
Two times God says this, you shall not be partial in judgment, you shall hear the small and the great alike. There's an assumption in Deuteronomy of equal treatment under the law. Israel should treat everyone fairly. Why? Because every human being is created in whose image? Image of God. And as Martin Luther King said, there's no gradations in the image of God. I'm not more imagey than you are, okay? We, we are all on an even playing field as image bearers of God. And that's an amazing assumption in the, in the ancient world. You know, we just think, well, you know, universal human rights are obvious. No, they're not. They weren't obvious to ancient cultures at all. This was a radical idea. In fact, the assumption in most ancient cultures was strong people are blessed by God and weak people are cursed. So the law should favor who? The strong, the rich, the powerful. Of course it should, because clearly God is on their side. Shouldn't favor the weak. And then you have Israel here saying, treat the small and the great alike. That's been a radical introduction into human history. That's the basis. That's why we assume there's universal human rights. And we just assume that it's just intuitive to us now. Of course, there's equal treatment under the law. That was Israel, equal treatment under the law. But then God also says, you should be especially concerned about vulnerable groups of people. Now, how do we reconcile those ideas? Because on the one hand, God says, treat everyone the same under the law. But then he says, by the way, there's gonna be these groups of people like the widow, and the fatherless, and the poor, and the sojourner, and they are really vulnerable, so take special care to look after them. That sounds like favoritism. How do we link those things together? Is it consistent? It is. God is not saying apply different legal standards to different groups of people. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. As one moral philosopher has said, injustice in the world is not equally distributed. Injustice is not equally distributed. Vulnerable people are more likely to get taken advantage of, aren't they? I can give you a thousand examples, but there are people who are more in danger of getting exploited by other people or by the system. And so God says, take special care for them because they're right on the teetering edge. So treat everyone the same way the law, but show special concern. Let me, let me give you an example of how this could work, okay? Let's say I break a law. Okay, I know you gasp, right? I, I broke a law. And let's say it's bad enough that I've got to spend like six months in prison, okay? And you can just make up whatever law it is in your own mind that I broke. But I, I broke a law and now, you know, I'm not insanely wealthy, but you know what I'm gonna do when I go to court? I'm gonna lawyer up. <laughs> I'm telling you now, I am lawyering up and I am draining my savings and I'm gonna use my social capital. And I've got a lot of social capital. I got more than that. Then well, I'm going to say, guys, you know me. You know I'm a good guy. Come vouch for me. Here's the GoFundMe for my legal fees, right? <laughs> right? And I'm coming in, and I'm coming with a stacked deck of lawyers, right? And they know going to know how to argue my case, right? And hopefully, I can get that six months wiped off right away. Get it down to a misdemeanor. And then I'm going to get that thing down to a misdemeanor. And, and you know why? So I can just do public service hours. And that's a good thing. I'm a pastor, right? So I could just do a lot of community service, kind of do what I'm already supposed to be doing and just work that off, right? That's what I'm gonna do. And I have the resources to do that. But let's say that Jeff is already absolutely broken life and has no social capital. And, and let's say I can't hire a lawyer, so I need a public defender, but the public defender's office is way underfunded. So the guy who's supposed to help me barely has any capacity to help me. And then he just comes in and says, hey, just take a plea deal because that's easier. And so don't spend six months in prison, just spend three. That's the best you can do. What am I going to do? 
I'm gonna defend myself in court. I don't know how to do that. And I presumably broke Jeff doesn't know how to do that either. I'm gonna take the plea deal, right? And so what happens? I get to keep my job and keep working. This guy might spend three months in prison. You see the problem? You see the challenge? That injustice and difficulty is not equally distributed, which says why God says take special concern for those who are particularly vulnerable. And we'll talk more about that next week. All right, this is getting more challenging. Okay, I'm gonna make it even more challenging, okay? Justice in the Bible is not just public, it's personal. It's not just about getting your political party to win or getting the perfect public policy enacted. It's about personal sacrifice to help people. That's harder, isn't it? Deuteronomy 27, look at what Moses tells every individual Israelite. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, amen. Everybody. Everybody said that. Yeah, amen. All right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wasn't asking you to say it, all right, but uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, um, every Israelite signs up for this and says, in my personal life, in my personal righteousness, I am committed to this. And it is very tempting in our culture to armchair quarterback every problem in society, isn't it? You know, the reason this is a problem is because they won the election. It's because he's president. That's a, that's a problem. And that's, that's why. And you know what you can do the minute you diagnose that problem? You kind of go, I'm not responsible. I don't have to do anything. As if, if my ideas were just implemented, then we'd have the world that we wanted. But I don't have to do anything costly. The Bible says, no, this is a personal commitment. I was really convicted of this when I thought about foster care and when Cashel and I were getting involved in the foster care system. Because if you look at a kid who comes into foster care, you go, well, how did that happen? How does a kid end up in foster care? What were the conditions that led to that? And depending on where you fall on sort of the cultural political spectrum, people have different answers. And some people will say, look, this is cultural rot and decay and the erosion of the family and the sexual revolution. And other people will say, no, this is a long history of discrimination and housing and public policy. And that's how we got the kid. And so some people will blame the culture. Some people will blame politics or society over here. And and here's the thing. We can have that argument about who does what and, and maybe there's some validity on both sides. But you know who no one blames in that situation? the kid in foster care. No one, no one pulls the principal Skinner from the Simpsons, right? No, wait a minute, it's the children's fault, right? Like no one, no one says it's the kid's fault, but we should blame the kid. No, the kid is completely helpless and I don't care how far upstream of the issue you get to fix it in 70 years with policy, that doesn't fix anything for the kid today in foster care. And the only way anything gets fixed for that kid is because someone is willing to take them into their house and work to either rehabilitate the family and get them back into the family or take the kid permanently. That's the only way that specific situation gets fixed. Now that's challenging, isn't it? Because we can argue all we want about the upstream solutions or downstream causes of whatever, but it doesn't fix anything for the people who are actually vulnerable today. And there's no way to alleviate that distress unless someone gets skin in the game and does something about it. That's more challenging. 
All right, one more thing to make it even more challenging. And, and, then, and then we need some good motivations, don't we? It's not just internal, external rather, it's internal. It's not just that you do right things, you do it from the right heart of love and genuine concern for people in need. Oh, okay, now it's hard. Now it's hard. Uh, Deuteronomy 15 presents this scenario where a poor person comes to an Israelite and asks for a loan. But here's the thing, every seven years, the Israelites gave the land rest. They gave the land a break, basically, to have it recover. And so during that seventh year, you let the ground lie follow so it could heal and restore. And you, you, you didn't have crops for that year. You're trusting God to provide. Now, if a poor Israelite came to you and took a loan in year six, here's the thing. You couldn't enforce loans in year seven where there was the forgiveness of the land because they had nothing to harvest. They had nothing to pay you back with. And so you had to wait a really long time to start getting a return on your loan. And here's what God says to his people. If anyone among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought where in your heart. And you say, oh, the seventh year, the year of release is near. I'm not getting this loan back for a long time. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and you cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. So she's not saying just give all your money away indiscriminately. No, it's still a loan. It's gonna be a deferred loan, but it's gonna cost you. And you have to do it not grudgingly, freely, openly, out of love for your fellow countrymen. Now that makes this way more challenging, doesn't it? Because ultimately pursuing mercy and justice is genuine compassion and care like God has toward those in distress. And I think one of the easiest things when you're involved in any kind of mercy or justice work is to get annoyed and fatigued and discouraged or just get compassion fatigue and want to give up and your heart gets hard gets hard. And so what on earth would motivate us to live this way where we disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others out of joy in our heart and genuine concern? Well, here's what Moses says four times in Deuteronomy. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. You know what Moses is saying? You know, the one thing that's gonna motivate you to show mercy and justice toward those in need is because when you were in desperate need and you were in slavery and you cried out to God, God intervened, God saved you, God delivered you, God provided for all your needs and God planted you in this land today to bless you and he is only always good and gracious to you. That is the only thing that will motivate you to do justice with a heart of mercy is to show that God restored you in mercy. And that's the only thing that'll keep motivating us. That when we were enslaved to sin and we were under the power of Satan's dominion, Jesus heard our cry for salvation before we even cried out to him and we were his enemies. In fact, he came down and died for our sin and bore God's just punishment. He experienced what? The retributive righteousness of God. 
God doesn't owe us grace. God owed us punishment. And Jesus took it so that we could experience restoration, restoration of the image, and so God could be merciful and gracious to us. Perfect justice and mercy. That's the only motivator is how God has treated us. Family, that's the only thing that'll motivate you to keep disadvantaging yourself for people. The other motivations won't work. What motivations won't work? I'll tell you. Here's a bad motivation. Pursuing justice to feel good. Oh, I feel bad. Jeff gave a talk. Convicted. I'm gonna go do something to get rid of the guilt. You don't have guilt. Jesus took your guilt. It's not why you do this. You don't have, there's no condemnation here. And the thing is, if you do this out of guilt, you'll just do good till the feeling of guilt goes away. Then you'll stop. And it's more about how you feel ultimately than about what the other person needs. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. We'll talk about it more next week. But one of the biggest mistakes we get to when we think about doing good or mercy and justice, it becomes more about us doing something that feels good than something that actually helps other people. And so then it's more about us than about them even. Feeling good is not gonna sustain you to do real good for other people. The next one, this is the big one I think in our culture is to look good. I need to pursue justice so I can be on the right side of history. I need to pursue justice so I can have the right yard sign and the right social media and, 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 and co-sign all the right things so I can be on the right team. What does Jesus say? Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before men that you might be seen by them for I tell you truly, then you have your reward in full. This isn't, this isn't about being looking good in the eyes of the world. That's just fear of man, not fear of God. And if you're doing this to look good, you will inevitably substitute a biblical view of justice with a cultural view of justice and you'll pursue some cultural end of justice that the Bible might call injustice rather than be care about God's justice. This isn't to look good. You're not gonna get props from the world all the time for pursuing this, okay? Sometimes you get opposition from the world for doing what God calls justice. It's not to look good. Finally, it's not to establish good. What do I mean? You know, if we do good, the world will finally become good and everything gets fixed. <laughs> if we just get the policies right, if we just elect the right people, finally utopia will come, right? Good luck. Good luck. It doesn't happen. And you know what? God says it won't happen. You know what he says to Israel? I love this. <laughs> Deuteronomy 15.4, you know what he says? There will be no poor among you. Utopia. Perfect. There will be no poor among you. Israel, if you live out my vision, there won't be a person in need. And then you know what he says in verse 11? There will never cease to be poor among you. <laughs> Wait, what? Which one is it? What's God saying? You know what he's saying? Israel, if you enacted my social program, there would not be need. Guess what? You're not gonna do it. You're not gonna get this right because every human system and policy and institution is marred by sin and always will be. And this world will always be broken beyond repair, save for the intervention of God, always. And you will not have the stamina to keep doing good and justice as it feels like the world is falling apart if the goal is to fix everything. You will burn out. 
and you won't have the endurance. You know why we do it? Because God has been good to us. Because God has been gracious to us. Because God has been merciful to us and is always merciful and, uh, and just to us. And out of that gratitude, we do good to show the world what God's like. And to show the world their desperate need for that God who alone can fix the world. That's why we do it. It's the only motivation that sustains. And listen, if you're not a Christian or you're not investigating, listen, Christians don't co-sign any cultural vision of justice. We don't because we follow the God of justice. We're not beholden to the ideologies of the world in this at all. And so our view of justice, sometimes you might like it, sometimes you might hate it. It's God's vision that we're after. It's not a human vision. But what I hope you can see is that we all long for God to be just, but there's a problem with that, isn't it? God, make the world just. How do you do that? You gotta judge evil. Who's he gonna judge first? <laughs> the really bad people, God, go after them first. Go after the Nazis and the, just the murderers and the worst people. Wipe them out and then the world will be better, God. And then, then, then go with the people of the opposite political party. Wipe them out. And then go with all those, you know, the worst kind of people over here and wipe them out and just then the world will be good. You know, at some point as you wipe those people out, guess who you get to? You. And then guess what? You are the worst person in the world. And then guess what? The only way for the world to get better is for who God to wipe out who? You. Right? God, judge the world, just not me. And that's why God's justice is so uncomfortable for us because it's not that God cares less about justice than we do. He cares about it infinitely more. And that leaves us all as beggars before the cross. It's not just that we can't establish justice is that we're due punishment. So we are desperate before God and we're all beggars at the foot of the cross and need his grace. And we understand how exacting God's justice is. Then we're grateful for his grace and then we can do justice out of a heart of mercy for the long haul. Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you for your word that instructs us. I hope that I have taught it accurately today, Jesus. And I just thank you for your great grace and mercy. And with that be the enduring motivation for us to do justice and love mercy because that is what you do. It's what you did for us. So we praise you, Jesus, in your name, amen.